1: Welcome to Polygamy, What Love Is This? I'm your host, Doris Hanson. You know, God promised that His Word, the Bible, would endure forever, and Jesus promised His words would never pass away. And since we can trust Jesus, we can also trust what He said in the Bible. And we use it to bring the message to polygamists that God never commanded, nor does He require polygamy. Before we get started, we want you to know that we do help people leave polygamy and we help them know that God will never be angry at them for leaving or for running away. You can call our toll-free number 877-425-9993 for a private And confidential discussion about your situation and find out how we can help. You can go to our website, shieldandrefuge.org, for information about our ministry. Now, if you or someone you know would like to be on the show and tell your story, or if you have comments or questions, you can email us at email at whatloveisthis.tv. Also... Audio versions of our program are available to download. You can go to our main page for instructions, or you can go to soundcloud.com slash whatloveisthis.tv, and our show is also available on iTunes podcast. Now, normally we have our co-host Earl Erskine here with us to help us along with the show and to add some of his experiences and wisdom, but he's away on vacation this time. We miss him, and we hope that he has a restful time away, but I'll be doing the show alone this time. Several times in the past few years since we started doing our program, Polygamy What Love Is This?, we have discussed and answered questions from our viewers about polygamy in the Bible. Now, we don't want to continue kicking a dead horse, as it were, but. We still get questions, either from viewers who haven't watched our shows or those who have watched and just can't seem to understand why polygamy is recorded in the Bible if God doesn't support the practice. People seem to focus on the polygamy that is recorded, but they ignore the contention and the pain of polygamy that's also recorded. Then they come to conclusions filled with error because they haven't done due diligence to understand culture and context. Perhaps people just see only what they want to see as well. Deeper study of biblical polygamy includes looking at every story within the families of polygamists in the Bible, noting every detail. This time I would like to answer some of the ongoing questions by approaching it from someone else's viewpoint. His name is Paul Copan and he has written a book that includes great explanations about polygamy in the Bible in in the biblical context and in the cultural context and it's about the concubines in the Bible and God's will regarding these practices his book is entitled is God a moral monster and it's published by uh, Baker House Books and in this book he deals with some very difficult passages within the Bible and answers many of the why questions about some of the Old Testament cultural behaviors and how God dealt with them and why. On page 101 of his book, which is the beginning of chapter 10, the author addresses the question, Is God misogynistic? Which is one of the charges that many people bring against the God of the Old Testament. Our first quote is from page 101 of his book. When we start talking about the treatment of women in the Old Testament, the pandemonium begins. Feminists accuse Old Testament writers of endorsing all kinds of sexism and patriarchy and even misogyny, which is hatred of women. Why does Sarah refer to her husband as my master? What about all those concubines? What about levirate marriage? Why does God permit polygamy? Doesn't the Old Testament endorse a bride price, which only reinforces the idea of women as property? Now, these questions are asked by people who haven't studied biblical culture, biblical principles from cover to cover, and other ancient cultures as well. These are valid questions. We hope to answer some of them on this program using this book. Now we only hope that those who have these questions will be honest with themselves and do the research for themselves and in doing this will discover God's perfect character and His perfect love. Probably the most misunderstood reason for being unable to grasp the true meaning of the biblical text is a misunderstanding of the human nature. We all have the nature of sinfulness and selfishness. Now, people don't like to hear that, but the Daily World News is evidence of that fact. When God started out with Adam and Eve, there was no sin. There were no inadequacies, no selfishness. But after sin entered, problems arose not only in the marriage relationship, but in human relationships as well. And humans' relationship with God became antagonistic. Selfishness ruled, and it still does. And, as cultures in the ancient world proves, females seem to have taken a harder hit than the males did. It is man who has devalued females. It wasn't God who did that. God created male and female on absolute equal levels. Culture and laws regulate human behavior because of our fallen, sinful nature. Laws were made for those who do wrong. Every nation has laws, and God has laws too, because humans need them. God works with us where we are at. He gives commands and then applies guidance and penalty for breaking His commands. The nations of the world do that, and so does God. One thing we can be sure of we reap what we sow. Regarding polygamy, God instituted monogamy, which produces a relatively more peaceful and safe relationship than polygamy does. But if we sow to a polygamous relationship, we reap tension, favoritism, neglect, jealousies, and sorrow, because we reap what we sow. That is life. Believe it or not, God provided protection and controls against abuse of females in the ancient substandard conditions. There are oppressed women in the Old Testament, and feminists complain about it. But we also see a lot of oppressed men. And because oppression is recorded, is not endorsing oppression or abuse of any group of people. Actually, the guidelines from God were far more honoring and protective for females than were any of the other cultures around them. Social structures in those ancient cultures were patriarchal. And to better understand, historically, the hierarchy of households, the father in the home held the legal responsibility for everyone in the home. The legal responsibility was for it was the fathers for centuries and even in some locales it still is today god instructed that if a woman made a vow the father or the husband was required to make it legal or not not because the female had less value but because he had the legal responsibility that's in the bible there's nothing misogynistic about that actually it's with an eye of god's protection of females not favoritism towards the males. Social attitudes and ideas die hard, especially the patriarchal attitudes of the ancient Eastern cultures. It was normal in that culture for a woman to call her husband Lord, which Sarah called Abraham. But you find no command from God that she should do that, only that she did do it. God never told them to go to Egypt, but they did. God never told them to come home with slaves, but they came home with a lot of slaves. And God never told Sarah to give Hagar to her husband as another wife. But Sarah did that. And all this is recorded, but none of it was commanded by God. Even the slave woman Hagar was considered property, and she was abused by another woman, Sarah. This is recorded in the Bible because that's what happened not because it was God's will or how he designed it to be. Now, the author of this book reinforces the fact that God wants to bring women back to the original equality that he had created them to have. His intention has never been to undermine females. We quote again from the book, pages 102 and 103, quote, On the other hand, these embedded patriarchal attitudes distorted the many strong biblical affirmations of female dignity and equality. Mothers and wives deserved honor equal to that of husbands and fathers. And strong matriarchs both helped lead Israel and had sway within their households. Yes, the husband was the legal point person for the Israelite family, But we shouldn't automatically assume that women considered this an oppressive arrangement. In fact, wives in many Old Testament marriages were, for all practical purposes, equal and equally influential in their marriages and beyond. Proverbs 31 is a good example. In the summer and fall of 2016, we did a five-part series about Biblical male and female equality, and we're not going to be going through all of that information again, even though it's relevant. But suffice it to say, God gave his guidelines to his people with a view in mind to protect the females against the patriarchal abuse of the dominating males. All of these cultures practiced abusive patriarchy. Now chapter 10 of this book has a lot of great information about the equality of male and female from God's viewpoint. Now if you're in or if you're from a polygamy group, reading this book will help you understand that God values females no less than he values males. But we want to discuss chapter 11, which deals with concubines polygamy and other issues that directly affect today's claims in the Mormon polygamy culture. And as we've said before, just because the Bible records polygamy does not indicate that God was pleased with it or that he ever commanded them to do it. We have another quote from page 110, quote, Even if prominent Old Testament figures had more than one wife or had concubines, this still doesn't overturn the standard of monogamy in Genesis 2.24. But was polygamy legally permitted? Or did Israel's law prohibit this practice, even if Elkanah, David, Solomon, and others disregarded the prohibition? Well, God hasn't changed His original design of monogamy for marriage. Chapter 11 brings an interesting and refreshing outlook on how the Bible deals with females, female equality, polygamy, concubines, and other such questions. Again, we need to look not just at the culture of Israel but at the culture of all the nations around them and in that same period of time. Religious polygamy did not exist in the Old Testament. It was cultural, not religious, for a married man to take concubines. They were legal, but they were second-class wives. If a man's legal wife was infertile, a concubine gave him the ability to continue his family line. Ancient biblical families also embraced this practice, as we see in the story of Abraham and Sarah. To be childless was considered a disgrace so a second-tier wife would be brought in to produce offspring for the family. God regulates according to the rule of law, just as our nation does, and He puts penalties in place for those who break His law, which is how nations throughout history and today govern their citizens. God's instituted monogamy, which was His ideal for marriage. But just as most people in today's world ignore or reject most of what God has said, Ancient cultures pretty much ignored him as well. Nowhere in any passage dealing with this problem will you find that God demanded or commanded their decision to take plural wives. Although God commanded Israel's kings not to take plural wives, it was mostly the kings who did take multiple wives. Not the prophets, but the kings. We quote from page 111 and 112. When it came to Israel's rulers, political maneuvering, not simply sexual pleasure, was often involved in taking concubines. Things eventually got ridiculous with Solomon having 700 wives and 300 concubines, 1 Kings chapter 11, often taking from other nations for purposes of political alliances. So De- Deuteronomy 17:17 17, 17 prohibited Solomon from doing almost everything that he actually did as king and it resulted in his downfall. There really is no room for those who defend Mormon polygamy to be using Solomon as an example to support polygamy because God was very displeased with him. In Deuteronomy 17, 17, God prohibited the leaders from taking multiple wives. Now we want to take time to look at Leviticus 18:18. Now we've talked about this on previous shows, but this particular book has great detail explaining that in this verse alone, God has totally prohibited all the people from polygamy. This is what Leviticus 18:18 18, 18 says. Neither shalt thou take a wife to her sister to vex her, to uncover her nakedness beside the other in her lifetime. Now, <clears throat> that is King James language. But we need to put this in today's English, which is very important to understand the verse. It says it like this. Leviticus 18:18 18, 18. While your wife is living do not marry her sister and have sexual relations with her for that would for they would be rivals Now it was forbidden you can read from this for a man to marry his sister-in-law while his wife was still alive Yet every single Mormon polygamy group practices this prohibition and well did as well as Joseph Smith. Now They use the Bible to support their practice of polygamy but they refused to use the Bible to govern it. But to further understand the prohibition of polygamy we read on page 113 that the Hebrew word that is translated into the phrase to make a rival wife is the same word used in 1 Samuel 1-6 where Elkanah took a rival wife to Hannah yet his other wife was not her sister, but she was a sister Israelite. Many Bible scholars have noted that this is a blanket prohibition for polygamy for all the nation, not just against marrying sisters-in-law, but any sister Israelite was not to be taken as a plural wife while the legal wife still lived. Besides explaining that word, the book points out that the first 17 verses of Leviticus 18 are dealing specifically with God's prohibition of incest but beginning with this verse, 18, a different construction begins and is used for God's prohibition of sexual crimes other than incest and begins with the prohibition of polygamy. We quote from page 113. This phrase, a woman to her sister, and its counterpart, a man to his brother, are used 20 times in the Hebrew Scriptures, and never do they refer to a literal brother or sister. Rather, they are idioms for one in addition to another. So this verse doesn't refer to incest. Rather, it refers to the addition of another wife to the first. In other words, polygamy. Excuse me. Yet the author asks the question, what about other instances in scriptures that seem to endorse polygamy? God forbids it in Leviticus 18.18 and Deuteronomy 17.17, yet people practiced it. And he answers this way, and I quote, Of course, the same could be said about many prohibited practices, idolatry, infant sacrifice, oppressing the poor, and so on. Yet some will argue that polygamy is implied or even divinely encouraged in certain passages. And that is precisely the problem that we have. People argue that it seemed that God divinely encouraged polygamy, and it does seem that way if we don't take all of the Bible in context take ancient cultures into consideration and realize that god doesn't contradict himself the author gives plenty of examples which we don't have time to cover each of them but we have time for a couple first in exodus chapter 27 or 21 7 through 11 and we're not reading those verses we don't have time but you can look them up Exodus 21, 7 through 11. God regulates the treatment of a servant girl if she becomes a prospective wife. Now, this is what they call a case law. An example of a case law is if two people quarrel or if someone hits someone else, then such and such should happen. The passage begins with if a man sells his daughter as a servant. Now, God is not condoning this. He is telling them, If this happens, then do this. And by the way, being sold into servanthood in that culture is the same thing as us going to work every day and punching a time card. We're selling our time and our intelligence and our talents to our employer in exchange for a paycheck so we can pay our bills. Well, they did that then. They called them servants. But God isn't ruling that servant girls are to become plural wives. But those things did happen. And there's nothing that indicates either the man nor his son in this household in this passage are married men. Those who see God authorizing polygamy in this passage are reading presupposed ideas into it first. He writes on page 115, and I quote So the servant girl should be guaranteed the basic necessities food, clothing, and lodging, shelter. So we're not even talking about polygamy here, let alone some implied support of it." And you can also see God's protection of the female. In reading this book, of course, you can read all the details that explains the Hebrew word and nuances and culture that need to be considered before judging it as a passage where God condones polygamy. Now, there are people who ask the question, why did God bless his prophets when they lived polygamy if he was against it? And they include David and Solomon as examples. Well, David and Solomon, although they, David is called a prophet, first of all, they were kings. Most of the prophets didn't practice polygamy. But, and we've already mentioned Solomon. But the single most problematic passage regarding David is 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 7 and 8, and we quote, Then Nathan said to David, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah, And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Now, on page 115, he explains that we should be careful about reading too much into the word gave. After all, the same word is used in 2 Samuel 12, verse 11, when God allows David's son to take David's wives and violates each one of them. God had said, I will raise up evil against you. I will give your wives to one who is close to you. That word give is identifying God's sovereignty, not His command. The master that he's referring to in these verses is King Saul. King Saul had left the the throne and King David was coming in to take the throne. And everything that was Saul's now was under the control and the care of King David. That has got to be remembered as we go through these passages and remember that this was written over 3,000 years ago. So the cultures and the words mean something different to us now than they did then. But I want to quote what he said about this on page 115. The sentence indicating that God gave Saul's house and wives to David is probably a general reference to the transfer of Saul's estate to the new monarch, David. If David took Saul's wife, Ahinoam, to be his own, this would be in violation of Levitical law. Ahinoam was the mother of Michael, whom Saul gave to David as a wife and Leviticus 18:17 forbids marrying one's mother-in-law so the passage hardly lends support to God's endorsement of polygamy end quote God does not support a behavior that he forbids i also need to mention that Ahinoam is the only wife that King Saul had and he had a concubine that's all he had also Ahinoam David or Saul's wife whom people claim was given to David, was old enough to be David's mother. It's unlikely at all that David took her as a plural wife, like the polygamists claim that he did. Deuteronomy 21.15 is another passage. You might want to write that down and look it up. And it presents a dilemma of an unloved wife and presents a scenario that is not about polygamy or supporting polygamy as proponents of polygamy claim it is. Quotes from page 116 of the book says this, Quote, Does this passage slyly endorse polygamy? Not at all. If a man has two wives is an example of case law. It gives guidance for when a particular situation arises. End quote. Other passages of case law, like we've talked, says if a man steals an ox or a sheep, they aren't advocating stealing. God gives all kinds of guidelines for crimes that are committed in the cultures in those days. If a man steals, if a man or a woman does something wrong, this is how you're supposed to treat them. And so saying it doesn't mean that's what he's saying you're supposed to do. They did practice polygamy. God didn't tell them to and yet people claim that's what he's talking about. When the same kind of case law comes along discussing marriage, all kinds of presuppositions enter into the minds of polygamists who are always trying to find a place where God has advocated or supporting polygamy but they won't find it and when they can't find it they torture the meaning of the passage to make it say what they want it to say. In this passage, the man in question could very easily have been a divorced or a widowed man, but the context is not marriage or polygamy. It is about God protecting inheritance rights. And I quote from page 117, Wherever we see God's ideal of monogamy ignored, we witness strife, competition, and disharmony. The Old Testament presents polygamy as not only undesirable, but also a violation of God's standards. Old Testament narratives subtly critique this marital arrangement. A man should find delight and sexual satisfaction with his wife in a monogamous marriage, Proverbs 5-15. This is a great book for those who doubt the goodness and love and justice of God portrayed in the Old Testament. There are many other examples he covers such as the bride price or dowry, did God allow rapists and condone female POWs for sex slaves, and other several other problems of Old Testament culture. We must always remember that people disobeyed God then just like they do today. I purchased my book from Amazon.com, it's well worth reading to find answers to some hard questions. It explains many difficult passages of the Old Testament, helps us understand God is sovereign and He always acts towards us first, not in anger, wrath and retribution, but from great patience and love, which are important facets of God's character and things we were never taught about God in the polygamy group. Thank you for watching, God bless.